as day six dawns, we see an almost completed earth in the completed expanse of the heavens. On day one, the primal heavens and primal earth are created. Empty, shapeless, void. The earth is utterly dark and covered in surging waters. And after this, God creates primal, eternal, elemental light. Remember, for the final eternal state of man, there will be no need for light. Remember that from the last class, Revelation twenty-one twenty-three. On the new earth, the new Jerusalem, we will not need the sun. We will not need the moon. We will not need any light because God will be our light. All the light we need will be supplied by the Godhead. There's no reason not to assume that that, that was also true in eternity past, prior to creation. The Godhead had all the light they needed even before they created elemental light. Day two, God does something that will be of vital importance to all the future beings on earth. He creates the first heaven, which will be an expanse between the waters on the earth and waters above, that is, the clouds. Thus, earth will have a surrounding atmosphere. Necessary not just for future birds in which to fly, but necessary for a suitable climate for beast and man. Day three, next, God separates the waters on earth's surface so that the dry land can emerge. Immediately within the same day, the fertile dry land sprouts fully mature vegetation, plants and fruit trees bearing mature fruit with seeds. Day four. The following day, day four, God populates the second heaven with planets and stars, including the nearest star, our sun, to give light on the earth and rule the day and earth's moon to rule the night. These two lights he ordains to separate the light from the darkness. All these lights that dwell in the second heaven, space, receive the light that will shine down on and be used by man from that elemental light created on day one. Then day five. Now begins the systematic populating of this brand new earth. There's no reason and... (laughs) There's no... Scratch that. There is reason and logic behind this. One might even say an intelligent design. There's a catchy phrase. I looked up intelligent design, found it on Wikipedia, which is not one of my normal resources. And I was amused by this. Quote, Intelligent design is a pseudo-scientific argument for the existence of God, presented by its proponents as an evidence-based scientific theory about life's origins. 
Proponents claim that certain features of the universe and of living things are best explained by an intelligent cause, not an undirected process, such as natural selection. Intelligent design is a form of creationism that lacks empirical support and offers no testable or tenable hypotheses and is therefore not science. End quote. Okay, that's the opposing camp. God, the most intelligent designer there's ever been, will populate the earth in order from the least to the greatest, or perhaps more accurately from the lowest to the highest beings. He will begin with those that swim in the sea, followed by those that fly in the expanse immediately above the surface of the earth, that is, the sky. These will include far more than just fish and birds, but some aquatic reptiles and great sea monsters, God words, God's word says. And I would suggest flying dinosaurs such as pterodactyls. Their creator not only declares this good, but surprisingly blesses these two kinds, ordaining them with the power to be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So now we come to the sixth and final day of creation. The first part of which we will look at in this session. But let's begin by reading the full account of the last day. Beginning with verse 24 in Genesis 1. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that creeps on the earth. Then God said, Behold, you're welcome. I have given to you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has the fruit of the tree yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that creeps on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw that all he had made God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. 
So let's look at verse 24. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. What I quoted Leupold on in our previous session applies to this verse as well, to this creative act. Here's what he wrote. God could have called forth these creatures by his mere word. Instead, he speaks the word that enables the earth to bring them forth. But let me add a sidebar here, which is the first of a couple instances where we have to look beyond this passage to fully understand it. A comparison of verse, verses 20 to 25, which is the creation of living creatures, with verses 11 to 12, which is vegetation and trees, reveals a subtle difference. Note that verse 11 says, Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation. And is reinforced in verse 12 with, And the earth brought forth vegetation. So it just reinforces what was said in verse 11, reiterates it. Verses 20 and 24, however, say something similar. Then God said, let the waters swarm. And then God said, let the earth bring forth, respectively. But instead of simply reinforcing this, as in verse 12, the text reminds us that even though the the earth and the waters played a role in this creative effort, it was God who made the creatures. Verse 21, and God created. Verse 25, God made the beasts of the earth. So in this systematic creation, God draws a distinction between living creatures and plants and trees. Later in day six, he will draw an even sharper distinction between the beasts and man. And I believe here is evidence for the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign and holds the right to establish a hierarchy within his creation. He calls the shots. First Chronicles 29.11, Exodus 33.19, and Romans 9.14-18. Once again, we have living creatures, which is, in the text, it's in the Hebrew, it's soul of life. And as I pointed out in our last session, even though these land animals, as well as the aquatic and flying beasts, have souls, that doesn't mean the same as it does with man. The soul, in this regard, means merely an animating principle. They breathe. They have life. In op- as opposed to trees and plants. The difference in the nature of the soul and in the hierarchy of beings between animals and man can be seen when verse 24 is compared to verse 7 in chapter 2. Look at that. Verse 7 in chapter 2. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became a living being. That's this interesting comparison. 
I love learning this stuff as I'm studying to prepare this. We see two differences, one subtle and one more pronounced between the chapter 1 and chapter 2 accounts. First, as to the soul, we see that the process is inferior to that for man. I said that wrong. You know, I have, what is it, about five different pairs of glasses with different lenses in them. Not one of them is right for right here. It makes me crazy. I got <sighs> but I digress. I told the la- last time I got glasses, I said, they're too far away. I'm sitting at my desk and I can't read. I have to back up like this. So, okay, I'll give you glasses that are closer. Now I have to be like this. <laughs> <sighs> Pardon me. Let me read that again. As to the soul, we see that the process is inferior to that for man. In verse 24, as in verses 20 to 21, we see God commanding that creatures come forth with souls. That is, they are created that way from the outset. Prefab, as it were. So reading the text literally, we see that things, the the birds and the the creatures, they are born with, they are created with souls. But with man, the soul is introduced by God, personally, in a more intimate manner. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust from the ground. He doesn't have a soul yet. He doesn't have life. He just formed him and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And so the man became, he wasn't created a living being, he became a living being because God breathed into him the breath of life. And here, the personal name for God is used, Yahweh Elohim. It's So far in chapter 1, it's been Elohim. Now it's Yahweh Elohim, and only after the man is formed from the ground is he given his soul. How? By having it breathed into him personally by Yahweh. That's neat. Second, the picture in verse 24 is of God commanding something to emerge from the earth. But in verse 7 of chapter 2, even though the earth or soil is involved in both, it is a picture of how I've described it in the past, God getting his hands dirty. God, it's a picture of God reaching down into the soil, literally, and forming. It's the same word used for, for making a clay pot. It's what a potter does. He forms the pot with his hands. And that's what God did. He reached down into the soil and fashioned, formed, created man. There's a measure of detachment in God's creation of the aquatic and flying animals and the mammals created just before man. But with the creation of man, it is different. 
God is the one literally forming man out of what Luther calls a lump of earth. Yet, and God's word continues to reveal itself, yet just how detached God is in his creation of the land animals, if at all, is hard to say. Look at verse 19 in chapter 2. Genesis 2.19 So, do you see the difference? Do you, do you see that? In verse 24, God said, Let the earth bring forth. Ooh, he's detached. He's letting the earth do it for him. That's kind of, you know. <clears throat> but then in 19, 2.19, Out of the ground Yahweh God had formed every beast. Same word, formed with his hands. Same word. Same word used in verse 7 does it describe Yahweh God forming man from the earth. It's Yetzar in the Hebrew. More on all this, of course, when we get to chapter 2. So back in chapter 1, living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. Here we have three groups or classifications of land animals. Three kinds or species that God brings forth from the earth. Cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth. So first, cattle. The translation cattle is common and okay, but I think it's too limiting, too narrow. I think the ESV and NIVs are better with livestock. For behemoth is a broader term than just bovines. Bless their hearts. Boy, did we see a steer today. Gee, big as a house. The idea is domestic beasts, those dumb, non-speaking animals bred and managed by humans. So it's farm animals instead of coyotes. That's the idea. Creeping things. And I, boy, I wish Renee would show up once in a while because I'm, I'm, I'm giving a shout out here to the NIV. That's, it's just, and I don't do that very often. I wish she was here. You need to tell her next time they're here, when the stringers are here next, hey, you missed some, some good things about the NIVs. I seldom have opportunity to recommend the NIV, so let me do it again here. The standard translation for this among our versions is creeping things. But the NIVs have creatures that move along the ground. What? That's better. Oh, it's creeping things. That kind of makes your flesh crawl, right? Creepy things. No, it's just animals that move along the ground. And, and, and that's closer to the meaning of the Hebrew remes. This would then include everything large or small moving upon the earth or close to the earth, moving about on short legs, the aforementioned coyotes. And then beasts of the earth. Once more, the NIVs. 
Go figure. While no doubt the least literal in their translation, leave us with a clearer idea of Hayath Haretz with wild animals. That is, non-domesticated wild beasts with freedom of movement upon the earth. So those are the three kinds, the three classifications. Verse 25. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, and God saw that it was good. Now, you can look at verse 25 as just a reiteration of 24. But I, I can't help but think that, that in this instance, considering the pedantic, repetitive nature of verse 25, he's using it to draw a contrast to what is about to follow. And what a dramatic contrast it is. I think he's, he's drawing a, making a, a very specific distinction between the beasts of the earth and man. Look at the rhythm of verse 25. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, the cattle after their kind, and every creeping thing of the ground after its kind. So all these animals are after the kind of a group or its kind. And God saw that it was good. The creation and allocation of these creatures was precisely according to God's plan. As with all those before. They were allocated into different species, sharing some traits, but each still distinct from the others. It pleased God to create them this way. It was good. Just as He planned. But now he's going to create something entirely different. Something that will share its kind with nothing less than God himself. Very different from the animals. In verse 26, we eavesdrop on the planning for this new creation. This isn't the doing. This is the discussion and establishing of the purpose behind the doing in verse 27. This is the Godhead, as it were, if I don't get zapped, sitting around the conference table working out all the details for the next and most profound step of the creation. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And it occurs to me that this is one of those, every once in a while there's a passage in Scripture that kind of stands out for this reason. It It's a, it's a line of demarcation between those who follow Christ, who have the Spirit in them, and those who do not. Because someone else might say, if, if you, you could read that, well, what else can it mean but that he's, we're gods, Right? 
God is making us in our image. He's a God. So he's making us all gods. You could go that direction. But by the power of the Spirit working in us, we're able to separate the two. We're we're able to understand that God has made man special, and he, because we are containers of the Spirit of God. And for one reason, I mean, there's a number of reasons how we are made in His likeness, and we'll deal with this in the next session. But it doesn't make us gods. Every Sunday morning during our prayer time, we are reminded of the consequences of man's fall in the garden. The consequences of his short-sighted rebellion against his maker. This twisted, depraved, painful, disease-ridden, cancer-ridden, groaning world in which we live is the direct result of the first man and woman forgetting, even for just one moment, one fatal moment, that they and they alone in all of this fresh creation have been made in the image of God. I would contend that there are three, and perhaps only three, epical events in the vast history of time that sent or will send a cosmic quake throughout the universe. Surely one of these was when the Son of God, Son of Man, died upon the cross. That quake is described in Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. After his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Matthew 27, 50-53 Mortal man cannot fathom the fierce Tembler that coursed through the universe in that moment. Like unto his death on the cross will be Christ's return. The universe will quake, but most especially this earth will be literally torn apart and reshaped, as is described in profound detail in Zechariah 14 when Christ once again stands upon the earth. Zechariah 14, 4-10 The first event, however, to cause such a shudder and tremor throughout earth and the heavens occurred not long, not long in cosmic terms, after the first week of creation. And we have to understand the depth and impact of that betrayal 
before we can truly comprehend the supreme grace that a holy God dispensed upon the human race on this sixth day. Then, of course, it works from the opposite direction as well. Understanding the unimaginable grace of being made in God's image reveals the true nature of the insidious action of Adam. One informs the other. We have clearly seen as we've progressed through the days of creation that that creation was no higgledy-piggledy mishmash of random acts, but a well-ordered, systematic plan that began with the elemental basics then moved steadily and logically into the more detailed aspects of the universe and this world. This plan, as made clear in the Genesis narrative, was earth-centric. Everything was being created for the benefit of this globe we call home. And now we see, and will see, that it was all being done for the benefit of man. The lights in the heavens, the animals, the trees, the bushes, the plants, the fruit, all for man. God didn't do all this for chipmunks or garter snakes or polar bears. He didn't do it for the trees, as disappointing as that may have been for J.R.R. Tolkien, who loved trees. And he didn't do it for the fish in the sea. No, he did all this for human beings. And it's a measure of God's forgiveness and grace that even after Adam's betrayal, God would send His own Son as the price of man's eternal salvation. Could you do that? Indeed, knowing that Adam would betray him did not stifle God's grace, nor the blessing. He gives the blessing of God giving man dominion over the earth and its other creatures. Chapter 3 will reveal in no uncertain terms that man's betrayal of his Maker was a cataclysmic offense that will reverberate not just through the heavens, but through time on earth, all the way through to the great white throne judgment of Christ. Revelation 20, 11-15 Only then will the penalty of sin be removed in preparation for the new heaven and new earth and the believer's eternal state with God. In our next session, in three weeks, we'll be meeting next week, but for Linda's breads, not me, uh, and then two weeks off. So in three weeks, we will examine in full God's last act of creation, man made in God's image, verses 26 to 31. Now, We have lots of time for questions, discussion. Or we could go home for pot pot roast. It's um, interesting that you put non-speaking animals. Yeah. Are there speaking animals? Sure. Birds. Birds. Some birds talk. I knew someone would set me straight. 
And of course, cats talk. We all know that. <laughs> you just have to know the language. It's interesting that that man and woman were created on the sixth day. That must have been quite a day because man was created first. And then it talks about he, um, in chapter 2, if you had a real Bible, you could find yeah, it. I do, but it's chap- I need a new Bible. <laughs> Genesis is falling apart. <laughs> <laughs> Tells about how a woman was created. Yeah. It wasn't, he, she wasn't created the same way as man, obviously. That's an interesting. So that's another kind of a highlight. I think. But there are some similarities. But yeah. but yeah, the, the initial creation is different. Yes. And that's a little surgery was involved. So that's just something to think about. That she, yeah, my ribs aren't feeling too good today, so I'll think about that. What is astonishing to me, studying especially chapter 1, is that how methodical it is. You know, growing up in the church and, of course, hearing about creation, you think, yeah, he did this, he did that, he did that, he did this, he did this. You know, and it all adds up to, oh, the world we live in. But it was more than that. It was, it's very systematic and, and very logical. Something's going to be needed tomorrow. He makes something today that'll make it happen or, or feed it. Or he does something that sets up the conditions for what is about to happen. Or he makes on this day someone who's going to eat something made that day. It, it, it's just very logical. And of course, you would not expect anything less from God. Of course. Intelligent design. Interesting too, the man he created sleep. The man had to sleep for Thank goodness he created sleep. A wonderful sleep in heaven. Linda especially is very very appreciative of I sleep in heaven a while ago. I hope I don't have to wake up two or three times a night. <laughs> heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace, that's right. Let's not get too graphic (laughs) about getting old. Anything else? I wish you guys would be consistent so I could... I was supposed to start at 5 till, but you freed me up before that. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this detailed account of your sovereign creation. What a gift. What an answer to this world, this fallen world. We thank you for your spirit who played such an important role in that creation and still today in each one of us. What a gift. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And may it 
find fruit. May it bear fruit and take hold in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.